troll J.K. Rowling, completely ripped off Troll, and got Harry Potter, the idea for Harry Potter from Troll, and she won't admit it. Radio Drome. Welcome to Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil, the Trachtenberg himself. Yes, uh, at least I am not an old uh, roadie-looking <laughs> dude. <laughs> hey, I, I can't deny how cool I am, okay? Oh, God. Tonight, we're starting a month-long look at the works of Charles Band. I grew up on Charles Band. I grew up on all of his stuff. But before we get into that, if you guys want to help out the show a little bit, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, free sex swing, good luck not crushing your nuts in that, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also... 1201 Beyond is a Rift Tracks affiliate. If you guys are going to be buying some movies that you're going to get Rift, go to 1201beyond.com backslash Rift Tracks, and it helps us out a little bit. So with that out of the way, like I said, we're going to look at all of the Charles Band stuff, all from his beginnings in 1973 all the way through today in a, in a big month-long, I don't want to call it a celebration, but a big month-long analysis of the Charles Band stuff, because I love Charles Band's work. Now, not every movie is great. Man, I grew up on these. There is a certain amount of earnestness and just honesty to them. They are what they are. They're not trying to be high art. They're not trying to be something they're not. They're just really fun movies, especially with uh, a lot of the earlier works, was that they were kind of budget appropriate. I never felt like they, they never felt overly cheap, even though like they were lower budget. I never felt like they were low budget. So they always uh, had a nice look to them, especially because they had a lot of very talented people that worked on them. The directors were always very competent, were very good. The look was good. Uh, they used a ton of practical effects. They had uh, uh, stop motion effects that just were wonderful. And they just were good and they they didn't overstay their welcome too they were as long as they needed to be they never were these huge epics and then if they were huge epics they broke them into multiple films uh so like uh transfers four and five was shot back to back and uh how a lot of them were kind of movie versions of the old serials it was a continuation each movie actually, was no no actually if if charles band would describe them he grew up loving because he grew up in italy he's fluent in italian he grew up because his father is albert band the, the director he grew up reading marvel comics that's what he equates empire and full moon to they're they're not the marvel comics characters but they're movie versions of what marvel comics used to be like in the 60s and 70s and i don't think that's an unfair comparison no, I think that's about right. You know, both, I think, f are fairly accurate as far as either comic, the old comic books or serials. They both have uh, that that feel to them, especially in movies like Mandroid and stuff where there's like a superhero. It does uh, it does fit that mold very well. And also, even though this is in the full moon era, all the crossovers, Dial Man meeting demonic toys, demonic toys meeting the characters from Bad Channels and things like that, Ginger Dead Man and Evil Bong, he loved the whole kind of shared universe thing long before marvel comics was doing that in the movies absolutely and there is kind of a neatness to it when uh you like a character and you're like oh that character is going to be in x movie i should watch that too it's smart business well we got to start actually before empire I'm going to be titling this episode, An Empire Rises. Empire didn't actually get off the ground until 1983. Charles Band was making movies 10 years prior to that. So we have to look at what came before, and that would be Charles Band Productions. Starting in 1973 with Last Foxtrot in Burbank, 
a movie that pretty much everyone wants to forget. Charles Band doesn't consider it his first movie, even though it is, and it's uncredited because he used a pseudonym, Editor, a little guy named John Carpenter doesn't even want it on his filmography. But then we go to, like, 1975's Mansion of the Doom, with a really early role from Lance Henriksen. I think this was even before he was in Network or Dog Day Afternoon. So this is super early Lance Henriksen. And then you've got Charles dabbling in the porno realm with Cinderella and the Fairy Tales movies. You know, Remember this is the Cinderella? Remember the Snapping Pussy? How could I forget? Then in 1977, you have Crash, not to be confused with the David Cronenberg film. And then you have what Christopher Lee calls the worst film he's ever been in in his entire career, End of the World from 1977. Yeah, I saw Crash a long time ago, um, and it is it is very weird. It is an unusual movie. It's a, a mixture of a lot of sentient car stuff and got some really, really great car crashes. I, I uh, remember, I, I haven't seen this one in 20 years, I remember, doesn't she like hit a dog and then like her spirit moves into the car or something like that that sounds about right it's same here it's been a very long time since i've seen it too i just i just remember it being a lot of car crashes and just weirdness well and then end of the world first of all christopher lee is a professional because you can't tell how much he hated being in this film i remember end of the world mainly being dull i don't remember it being so bad as just dull then we get into the period where Charles Band Productions arguably made their most, the biggest impact before we get to the 1980s, and that would be Auditions, which was literally just a collection of audition tapes, even though they're on film, audition tapes from various actresses, lots of boobies. And then you've got what might be the most famous pre-Empire film Charles Band did, Laser Blast, probably because of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I like Laser Blast. Yeah, it's a little goofy, I'll give you that. But I like Laser Blast. It's got some great stop-motion animation in it. Those aliens look great. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw Laser Blast on Mystery Science Theater first, and then I saw it, uh, you know, without the, the riffs. And uh, I like both versions, you know, because it is it is the kind of movie you can goof on, but it's also a really cool, fun sci-fi movie. When you watch the movie unriffed, it doesn't matter what time of the day or what time of the year. It feels like a summer at 3 a.m. on a UHF channel, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it's just that and, magical feel to it. Yeah. Oh, and then you've got fairy tales, the the porno, and then you have Tourist Trap. I've never been the biggest fan of Tourist Trap, but I understand why so many fans like it. I like Tourist Trap a lot. Uh, it's just it's so weird, and that uh, it, like the 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 whole thing it it just it works. I don't know. I I, I mean it has its problems, but uh, I've seen it a bunch of times. Again, <laughs> this is one that. Riff Tracks did. I've seen it. I saw it originally unriffed. So this was kind of the reverse of, of Laser Blast. I saw it unriffed and then I saw it riffed and then, uh, I saw it unriffed again. Um, and just, I think it's a fun, cool, weird, not particularly scary, but occasionally creepy movie. And then this was around the time home video was starting to be a thing. Now remember, other than those, other than those original Fox videos, from Magnetic, Charles Band was one of the few people that saw this home video thing really has a future here. He jumped on this seeing that there is a market for this kind of thing. So he helped form what was really the first independent home video company, and it's not Wizard that everyone thinks. It's Mida Home Entertainment, named for his then-wife. Just put yourself into the mindset of Charles Band at this time. You've got these tapes that are $90 a piece, and that's what you're selling them for. So they're probably costing you close to that. They're probably costing you 65 to $70 to make. And this is the entirety, other than those 20 Fox films that Magnetic Video had, this is the entirety of what you had on home video. Halloween, The Groove Tube, Slithis, Night of the Living Dead, Tunnel Vision, Laser Last, Flesh Gordon, Alice in Wonderland, the porno, Assault on Precinct 13, 20 Years of Rock and Roll, Rod Stewart Faces in Concert, Rockstar 69 Studio Sessions, a tribute to Billy Holiday, Cheech and Chong Perform, Jimi Hendrix in Concert, some Superman shorts, and Shame of the Jungle. That's the entirety of what you could 
rent or buy. You couldn't even rent. Video stores were kind of not a thing. And he said, you know what? There's a market here. It was a very, very smart maneuver because it was like, okay, there's a market here, an obvious market. No one's capitalizing on it. I guess I should capitalize on it. And it ended up being a brilliant maneuver. And uh, I am happy that he did decide to do that. And this all plays into how Empire comes about in a couple of years. Because then he he was never quite happy with his business partners at the time. Eventually, he just sold his third of Media Home Entertainment. And they changed it to what we know as Media Home Entertainment. And he took his money from that and formed Wizard Video, where he started distributing all of these weird Italian movies, you know, retitled, all these zombie flicks, all these foreign movies, some pornos, I Spit on Your Grave, movies like that. And Wizard Video was so popular, it helped him keep Charles Band Productions going. And then, so as we come into 1980, you've got stuff like The Day Time Ended, which... I haven't seen in 25 years, but I remember I loving the stop motion. I like some of the artistic choices, but I remember this movie only being an hour 19 and feeling like a freaking five-hour film. I remember it being slow as hell. And then he comes up to what is arguably the first made-for-home video video, The Best of Sex and Violence. Hosted by John Carradine, although Keith Carradine and David Carradine show up later. Literally just the sex scenes and violent scenes from a whole bunch of the Wizard video clips. He's like, why buy all the movies? All the best parts are right here. Genius! I mean, hey, uh, we've got, what was it, Terror in the Isles came out later where it was all like the horror scenes of a bunch of movies. Why not have all those scenes compiled in uh, in one thing? You know, sure. Who doesn't want to see all that? Just cut to the chase. Cut to the chase even more with 1982's famous TNA, which is exactly what you think it is. All of the TNA scenes by a bunch of famous actresses from their movies. Cutting right through the bullshit, isn't it? Hey, yeah, you give the public what they want to see. Most famous film from this era, starring a then-unknown Demi Moore, 1982's Parasite. And I, I'm weird when it comes to Parasite. I like what's around the movie better than the movie, if that makes any sense. I think the plot with the parasite and the scientist is dull and boring. I love the world they created, this world without gasoline, this world where currency is a, is a fluid thing, where the gangs rove the, the wastelands. You can either live in a 1984 dystopia or live in Mad Max times. I actually like the world of Parasite better than the actual plot with the parasite. I, the first time I saw Parasite, I saw it a little too young, and um, I just was very confused. And then uh, I came back years later, and I enjoyed it for a lot of the reasons that you said, where I like the world around it, but I also kind of dig the movie itself. I think that uh, it uh, could have been better, but still I enjoyed it for being just something different. Well, and it was also in 3D originally. Charles Band really jumped on this whole 3D thing. He he loved it because there's numerous films in, in his filmography here that either were shot in 3D or were going to be shot in 3D. So for some reason, he thought 3D, 80s 3D was really going to be a thing. That's one I'm not so sure he was such a genius on. Charles is not the only person that's been trying to make 3D happen, so you can't particularly fault him because they're still trying to make 3D happen. Well, and then we get to the film that is arguably causes Empire's creation, Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, distributed by Universal Pictures. It's basically a Road Warrior ripoff. It was meant to be the first part of a trilogy, and that said, the movie absolutely doesn't work on its own. The entire first movie of this, you know, trilogy that never happened is all world building. Nothing happens for 90 minutes in this film. And then at the end, it ends on a huge cliffhanger. Jared Sin escapes. The hero goes after him. And there's no more movies. And this movie really loved the 3D. Anything that can come at the camp. This is almost a Tony Anthony level of anything that can fly at the camera comes at the camera kind of 3D. Which in 2D looks ridiculous. 
I still think it's badass. <laughs> I think it, it just has such an absurd title, too. We don't really get stuff like that anymore. Like, what teenage kid or, or you know, younger kid would, oh, I want to go see the, you know, Jared Sid. Oh, that's, it just sounds awesome. Makes you want to see it. So I've always had a soft spot for it. Well, it would be the first time Tim Thomerson would work for Charles Band, as we know he will, what, a dozen more times down the line. So early Tim Thomerson, because the movie was so popular, it made a ton of money, no matter what anyone thought of it. And it was not well received by critics, but it made a ton of money. And he took that money and used it to form Empire. He was like, I'm sick of making other people's movies. He took that money to make Empire. But before that, there were other films in here. For instance, The Alchemist from 1981 and 1983 and 1986. He made before that. He made that in 1981 starring Robert Ginty, and it's the only time in his career he's what he called a gun for hire. It's the only time he did not direct one of his own movies. You can tell the movie's boring. It's lifeless. It's got some nice effects in it, some nice practicals, some nice opticals. Richard Band's score is fantastic. That's the big giveaway. So The Alchemist is technically not an Empire film, but then in 1986, it was actually released theatrically by Empire, so The Alchemist is technically an Empire film as well. And then you've got the the film gore, which was, this was another great idea, but my god, it did not work. We'll get all of the gore scenes from movies, like we did with Best of Sex and Violence and Famous TNA. We'll basically take movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Driller Killer, edit them down into 18 to 20 minute digest size versions, and with all of the violence being the spotlight. We'll get Elvira to host this and make smart-ass comments around it, and it's written by Forrest J. Ackerman. In theory, that should work. If you've ever sat through film gore, wow, it does not. And then the last pre-Empire movie would be technically Walking the Edge, which is really an atypical Empire film. It was a pickup, so it's not one he made. It's a Robert Forster revenge thriller, sort of a Robert Forster Death Wish movie that was actually made in 1982, but then would become one of the very first Empire films when it was when Charles Band bought it and released it. So again, this is an Empire film that's not really an Empire film. But so basically now he's got Empire. It They are stationed in Italy. He bought Dino De Laurentiis' old studio in Rome. Dino had financial problems a year or two earlier, so Charles Band went and just bought everything that he could. So he's got Dino's studios. He, he lamented to me when I interviewed him. He had all of the old costumes from Barbarella, the sets, the props, all of the old Dino productions prior to 1983. And he sold all of that then. He really, really wishes he'd kept some of that stuff. But so he had all of Dino's old equipment, all of his studios. So he had this giant facility to start cranking out movies. And the brilliant thing he did, why just make one movie at a time? He really wanted to be one of the mini majors. He wanted, not his words, but he kind of wanted to be like Canon, but although he didn't have enough money. You know, he wanted to be out there competing paramount and fox and stuff like that so the budgets got bigger on the films the production values got bigger sometimes they would have four different movies shooting on four different sound stages within dino's old facility at the empire pictures facility all at the same time to be fair when fox launched uh, the late 80s the three major networks laughed and oh god here comes this network and you're going to compete with NBC, ABC, and CBS. You're never going to go anywhere. There was one, I, I don't remember who it was, but it, I believe it was uh, one of the executive heads for ABC who made this statement saying, you know, we have nothing to worry about this stupid channel. And then they ended up losing a like, I think Monday Night Football to Fox, and the dude, like, lost his job and ended up being, like, demoted. There was to, one like, point, some... there was one point in Fox's first year when, when it, it wasn't even something like Married with Children or 21 Jump Street. It was America's Most Wanted on a channel that less than 30% of the country got was getting ratings better than the, uh, than the big three on a Sunday night. 
Yeah, they crushed him. So my point in this being is that you got to risk it to get the biscuit. He decided to go up against the big guys and uh, really started churning out a lot of stuff. Paid off in a certain sense that, uh, you know, he, he was able to get a foothold in the market. It didn't uh, didn't blow up quite as big as he probably would have hoped. But I think that uh, he definitely gained a foothold there. Well, because see, one of the things that he would do is he would cut through all of the bullshit. You know, you always hear these filmmakers talk about development hell. You go, you go to Fox, you go to 20th Century Fox, you pitch a movie, and then the executives got to look at it, and you got to break down your budget, and then you got to focus group it. And, you know, it could be a year before you get a green light. That's not the way Empire Films worked. Empire was, if this, a weak turnaround. You would... You would go to Charles Band, you'd pitch him the idea, you'd tell him how much you think you might need to make it, and he would say, okay, I'll get back to you. Between three and seven days later, he'd he'd either come back with a yes or a no and say it opens in two months, start shooting. He would give the green light without a script just based on a pitch. Nobody! That's insane to think today, isn't it? Oh, God. Well, it's funny now because... Somebody would, would, uh, they'll fast track something and then they'll start dumping money into it and then it'll get stuck in development hell. And it's like, well, you already put the money into it. Continue. So I think that there's a certain beauty to that. Uh, maybe the, uh, give it a little bit more time to, uh, to, to come together than a couple of months. But then again, they, they still came out and they still worked. So they were doing something right. Well, one of the things that they weren't doing right was, and, and this would contribute to what will be next week's episode, An Empire Falls, and that is he made a proclamation in 1983, 2,000 films by the year 2000, and he wasn't kidding. At any moment, they were shooting four films at a time, and they had between six to eight more greenlit that were just waiting for sound of an available soundstage to begin shooting. If the market would have kind of continued the way that it was going, uh, that probably would have been possible. But um, uh, well, as we know... The way, th- Charles, the, way, th- the way Charles puts it, none of these films really made any money after you take out advertising and prints. Because this was unheard of at the time, even by canon. He would open a film wide. He, he would take a film like Ghoulies and open it in 1,500 to 2,000 theaters. That's the stuff only Fox and Paramount can do. No independent studio was opening a film in 2,000 theaters. Charles thought we thought he could do it. Didn't technically work. Yeah, unfortunately. But what do you know? Again, there there are some movies that come along that you're like, wait a minute, how how did this become a thing? So especially back then, it uh, people were looking for something different. People are always looking for something different. And uh, sometimes that something different ends up becoming a huge hit and ends up making uh, the studio a thing. And then the other problem that they had, which is not necessarily a problem from so much from a production standpoint as it was for the directors and the actors who were mostly American, since all of these were being shot in and around Rome, they had almost complete Italian crews who did not speak English. So you'd have the director and the writer and the cast speaking English and the crew all speaking Italian. So you'd have interpreters on set. That's just waiting for a disaster to happen, isn't it? Yeah, that uh, communication is kind of important. We're now into Empire. The first film that technically comes out is The Dungeon Master, a.k.a. or to our foreign listeners, Rage War. You know what? I actually like the Rage War title. A very early PG-13 movie. This one, it's weird how Rage War is more famous for one line of dialogue in it today than what it was then. And personally, I like Rage War. I reject your reality and I substitute my own. Unfortunately, I think more people know that from Mythbusters than anything else, but comes from Dungeon Master Rage War. One of those really sad things is that shirts that have that on there, and it's quoted as Adam Savage from Mythbusters, and I'm like, no, it's not. It's Rage War. That was said to Richard Maul, damn it. Yeah, that was actually the reason why uh, I got it. Uh, there was a 
Uh, in the 90s, there was a video store around here called Movies You Buy. And what they used to do was uh, when all of the uh, video stores were going out of business, they were taking like like West Coast Video and all that. They were buying up all of their stock, all of their uh, VHS tapes. And they were selling them for like dirt cheap. And so I used to go in there and every week they would have just piles of stuff. So uh, I saw the Dungeon Master and I was like, oh, you know, I played D&D. I'm like, oh, a, a D&D movie? It's got Bull from Night Court in it? And that All very, right. very misleading cover with Blackie Lawless on it. Yes, Wasp is in the movie. They are not main characters, despite what that cover might lead you to believe. No, but I had already, like, I had known by this point to, to not always trust covers. Because uh, they'll put uh, somebody front center and then they are just uh, in the movie for an insignificant amount of time. So uh, I was just happy with having Richard Mall in it to some capacity. But uh, I got it and I was not disappointed. I thought it uh, was a lot of fun. And I just got it on Blu-ray not too long ago. It, it's, it's an actual, Which I never thought would happen. It's an actually really fun movie because it's like an anthology film but with one continuing character if that makes sense well that's the thing that was not what i was expecting i was kind of expecting something different i'm like oh it's it's an anthology all right <laughs> yet it's got the same character main character in every one of the stories also did you notice that the evil imp in this is so clearly reused in sorority babes and the slimeball ballerama as the imp in that it's clearly the same puppet uh, Uncle Impy, he just, he's, you know what, he found more work. That's all it is. <laughs> well, and then you have Ghoulies. Now, Ghoulies was almost a 3D movie. Charlie wanted to shoot part of the movie in 3D. Remember when the character puts on 3D glasses? Everything after that was supposed to be in 3D, but somebody, I think, wisely talked him out of that. But Ghoulies, I don't know if you remember, but that... The marketing for that. Remember the ghoulie coming out of the toilet? That was everywhere in 1985. Yeah, he spoke about that in, uh, oh God. Actually, in a commentary that wasn't the ghoulies commentary. I don't remember what movie it was, but he was talking about, uh, there was something and they, tra they were mentioning ghoulies and he was saying about how they had done the poster of the ghoulie coming out of the toilet and then they were shooting the movie and then after they shot the movie, somebody was like, hey, there, there's no scene with the, the ghoulie coming out of the toilet. And he was like, oh, that was just for the poster. And they were like, no, you have to put that in the movie. So they went back and shot that scene of the ghoulie coming out of the toilet and then everybody just loved it and it was a big hit. And that now they're selling uh, the, the ghoulie toy coming out of the toilet on their website. It's, it's uh, I, dare I say, iconic. It, you know what? Strangely enough, it is. I was 10 when that came out. It made me want to go see the movie. I am so, see, back then, the, the memory, I, I just don't remember exactly because it was such a flood of movies. So I don't know. It, I believe that ghoulies was my first empire movie i don't know if it was ghoulie like i it's ghoulies or robot jocks i'm just not sure i think it was ghoulies ironically enough robot jocks is the last empire film well, well empire jock empire or empire jocks robot jocks i saw because it had a trailer on a full moon uh like pr before a full moon movie and that was why i was like oh my god i have to see this movie was not disappointed well and then we come to what is arguably the most famous empire film reanimator a lot of people forget charlie band made reanimator and really charlie and albert band his father saved reanimator stuart gordon when he made reanimator if you've ever seen the tv cut of it where they cut out all the violence and add all those dialogue scenes back in that was all in the original cut stuart gordon said he was furious with charlie when he turned in the movie and then when he got back a rough cut that was not his version of the film he was furious he said they rearranged scenes they cut scenes they added stuff and then it wasn't until maybe he said he was so furious he almost didn't finish the movie finish the editing and, he, and then a year later he watched it and went you know what charlie was right that stuff all needed to go the movie works better like this and I think that's kind of where some of the genius of, of Charlie and Albert Band fall. They knew what would sell. Yes, all of those cut scenes are character development, but they really drag the movie to a dead stop at times, don't they? 
I don't know. I'm always, uh, I've always been a big proponent of give me character development when it's necessary. Give it to me because there's so many movies where they just skip all that. They get right to the kills. They get right to the action. And then there's no feeling behind it. You don't care when these people are going through this turmoil because you have no, like, uh, empathy. You have no history with them. So I like it when we learn more about the characters and, uh, you know, it's not just jumping to it. Now, yes, there is a certain magic to it you don't need to uh have in huge info dumps or uh just times when things really slow to a complete stall but you can do uh character development in a way that is engaging to the audience especially if it's written really well except so except the only thing is with reanimator i've seen all those scenes they aren't really that necessary to the movie. I, 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 I have to go with Band on this one. And so, like I said, Stuart Gordon agreed with him after the fact. Those scenes really didn't need to be there. I don't mind them. I like them. Well, and, th- and then we come on to, this is something Charles Band picked up from Roger Corman. Remember how Roger Corman would buy some cheap Filipino movie, shoot some, you know, one or two days with, with, you know, an American, and then insert all the footage and hope it worked out together? Not quite the way Godfrey Ho would. That's what he did with 1985's Savage Island. Bought this Filipino movie that would have been completely forgotten anyway. Had Linda Blair for, I think it was two days. Shot some scenes where the girl in the Filipino movie, which was then called White Slave, was her sister that she was searching for. So the Linda Blair stuff is like a female death wish. And then you've got this slavery jungle movie going on. The film stocks don't match. It's actually kind of brilliant and I, this shouldn't have worked. Oh, and also, Penn freaking Gillette is a security guard in one scene in the Linda Blair stuff. There is a certain magic to stuff like that. If, if Reanimator is the, is the most well known, the next would be Trancers. Tim Thomerson again. Trancers would be the beginning of a franchise. You know, with how much Full Moon would do with the Trancers franchise, I think a lot of people forget the first one wasn't a Full Moon movie. But it's a really fun, unique idea directed by Band himself. If it had not been for not only the chemistry between Helen Hunt and Tim Thomerson, but also Tim Thomerson's almost almost oozing charisma, Trancers wouldn't have worked. But man, does it. Trancers is just terrific because the concept is great, cast is great, a lot of fun. I did a video on it uh, not too long ago, and I, I've just always been a fan. I love Tim Thomerson, and I, I love the music, and uh, the first three Trancers are just fantastic. The other ones aren't as good, but the first three are. We'll, just we'll talk about the other ones classics. in a few weeks. Exactly, we'll get we'll yeah. get to that down the road. But still, the first three are are just excellent. How cute was Helen Hunt? Oh, she. You know what? The only time she was cuter was when she was on Saint Elsewhere the year earlier. She was so cute in the eighties. I I God, I don't even remember. Her. Well, I only saw some Saint Elsewhere. Not I didn't have a problem with it, but I just, you know, it's one of those shows that I I missed a lot of. She just I with the with the blue streak in her hair and everything. Oh, the like, blue Aw. streak was so cute. Cause she had this kind of little little pixie punk rock kind of thing going. Yeah. Like and, and, and it's a Christmas I, movie. I, I, Right, right. Yeah, it's a Christmas movie in, in, uh, you know, California. So it's like hot and there's just Christmas trees and Santas or killer Santas. It's, uh, I, I love when they're at the club and like they're trying to like dance to the music and she's, she's just kind of hopping up and down and, and Jack Death is like, uh, like <laughs> it's, it's just such a great movie. You know, everyone gives Roger Corman all this credit for look at all the careers he started. You know, they list off Scorsese and De Niro and, and James Cameron and all this stuff. Well, Band had a lot, too. Like I mentioned earlier, it was John Carpenter, Lance Henriksen, Christopher, well, Christopher Lee didn't start, but you know what I mean. You know, Penn Gillette, you got Richard Mall, you got all, you got a bunch of people, and then he had early Clive Barker. Before Clive Barker was anybody, his books had not even come out in America yet. And he had Clive Barker for the disastrous Underworld, which most of us saw as transmutations on VHS. I remember renting, because Clive Barker's name is on the cover, I didn't know at the time, they threw everything away. Barker says there's nothing left of his script in that movie. But contractually, Band was able to use his name. He said what he wrote was a contemporary mid-80s tale of mobsters versus monsters. 
He doesn't know what the hell that is that wound up on the screen. Transmutations is sort of this sci-fi, but it's like a neo-noir sci-fi that doesn't really work. There are some good ideas in there, and I don't know if those come from Clive or not, but the whole film is just a complete mess. The direct, I mean, everybody involved with this movie has washed their hands of it. So I don't know if Band is to blame for that one or not, but Transmutations was just a cluster. Then we go on to one. Now, I don't dislike Zone Troopers, but I think the idea is better than the film. I mean, you've got World War II soldiers and a crashed UFO. That is... Tim Thomerson, I, I, I think it was Thomerson's character, doesn't he punch Hitler at one point? I believe so. <laughs> it's like, Zone Troopers, there are parts that work, but I think as a whole film it doesn't quite work. But this is what Empire was doing at the time. They were doing movies that were above what, like, like Roger Corman was putting out, because Band was able to put a lot more money in than what Corman was able to do. And yet at the same time, no studio would have touched movies like this. And you'll notice up to this point, not counting pickups like Walking the Edge, Almost everything that they do is genre-related. Later on, that's going to change a little bit. I, I'm not trying to be insulting, but 1986's Breeders really is just aliens instead of sea creatures of a palette swap with humanoids from the deep. It's the same damn movie, isn't it? It is, but it's still good. But I'm just saying, it's, you know what, Humanoids from the Deep is better. And then, and then you have 1986's, I mean, when is Klaus Kinski ever not creepy, but Klaus Kinski being creepy in Crawl Space. Crawl Space is so creepy. You know what, I don't even know if Kinski tries to be that creepy or if it just happens. I think he just is. Just as natural, you know, to him. And then we go to 1986's Dream Maniac, which is, hey, what if Freddy Krueger were a girl? Ugh. That would probably go over big today. Now we come to the movie that made me love Empire. Now, I'm 11 years old at the time. I remember seeing this commercial on TV for this cyborg guy with ta a tank for a bottom half, and there's a ninja, and there's a rogue, and there's a little flying robot, and a scientist girl. Eliminators is amazing. It's, it's one of those movies where I'm like, when I finally did see it i found uh you know uh i i for, i don't even remember exactly how but it was like why is this not in my life already this is everything that like a young boy wants like you said the ninjas and the guy who's half tank and oh it's just great and then and then you have from beyond the hp lovecraft adaptation again from Stuart gordon and i think what was brilliant about this is now i can't remember the exact page count but the original From Beyond story is, what, nine pages, 12 pages, something like that? They very wisely made the decision, we're going to adapt it, but we're going to make a sequel, too. Because really, everything that comes before the titles of From Beyond is a relatively accurate adaptation. Everything after that's a sequel. From Beyond, I didn't see until, like, way later. I don't even particularly know why but uh it uh it just kind of fell through the cracks and because i had seen reanimator and bride of reanimator and all that i think it kind of came to my attention after i went through all the reanimators it was like oh i mean now granted i know from beyond is not tied in with the reanimators but it has it has the uh, lovecraft connection though the lovecraft connection exactly from Beyond is actually Frampton. pretty daring for 1986, because remember, these are still, even though Band is an independent, these are MPAA approved. I, I just watched From Beyond last week. I can't believe how sexually graphic that is for an R-rated movie. It's, uh, it's a doozy. <laughs> it certainly is. And also, I, I don't know if this was a contractual thing, but every movie Barbara Crampton made for Charles Band, she gets naked. I, I tended to notice that. I'm not complaining, Barbara. I'm just noticing it. Not Puppet Master. I think one of the... Now, this is one of the great things that Charles Band would do. When it comes to specifically the, the, the genre flicks, the fantasy, horror, and sci-fi movies, well, he wouldn't necessarily write all of these, and he would direct some of them. Band would always come up with, in his word, the concepts. Like, he might, he might say, hey, why don't you have this dream killer who's a woman, and she's stalking these guys at this party, and that would become Dream Maniac. Or, why don't we have the man, a mandroid and a ninja and all this stuff? Really, Eliminators, when you think about it, that's probably the most Marvel Comics up to this point. That 
that could have been a Marvel comic. It certainly could have. I, w- I would have liked it if it would. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because 1986's Ghost Warrior, or the original title with the idiotic sword kill, it's a stupid title, Ghost Warrior's better, is one of those unique, yeah, that's a Charles Band concept. What if a samurai warrior, so ha- parts of the film are a period piece, a samurai warrior is unfrozen in 1986 and brought back to life and has to deal, you got this fish out of water story and then the government's hunting him down. Ghost Warrior is a fantastic idea and I think a, one of those movies that people would go, this is actually a little more heady than a normal Charles Band production. Well, that's the thing. Those are those curveballs that come around every uh, every so often where you're like, wow, this is uh, uh, like has fair amount of depth to it. And I'm not knocking the movies, not saying that they uh, that they're all just uh, yeah, brainless movies. But I think that there is a certain amount of expectation that comes. And then every now and then one comes out and you're like, wow, this is of another level. Well, and then we go back to Clive Barker. See, Clive Barker had a two-picture deal with Empire. And they took his story. Again, most of his stuff is not on the sh- the, the books. And the short stories are, have not come to our shores yet. Rawhead Rex, which I read the story before I saw the movie. And maybe my opinion would be a little different if I'd seen that in the opposite order. Love the story. The story of Rawhead Rex is so good. It was so good that in the comic books for Nightbreed in the 90s, remember when Rawhead Rex would be a recurring villain? Well, the Rawhead Rex movie came out, and again, Clive washed his hands. And in fact, Clive was complaining so much about what they did to his script, they actually banned him from the set and had his picture given out to the security guards to not let him on set because he would not stop complaining about what they were doing to his movie. And if you've seen the movie, you go, Clive was probably right. Rawhead Rex is just not a good film. Parts of it are from the story. Parts of it are really stupid additions. I mean, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. And um, right now, it's getting a uh, Blu-ray release uh, sometime later in the year. And I'm just going to blind buy it and uh, check it out. I remember enjoying it, but I remember it being very cheesy. Uh, but we're going off of 20 years. Have you, I you think ever read I saw the, it. Have you ever read the source material, though? No, I really haven't read a lot of Clive Barker's stuff. I've actually read more of Clive Barker's comic books than I've read his actual books. Okay, because I, I think you you probably might hate it more if you've read the story because you, you look at the story and go, Look what you had! How do you f*** this up? Eh, the same could be said about a lot of movies. Well, and then we go to another movie that's more famous than it should be because of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I don't think Robot Holocaust is really all that bad on its own, but the Mystery Science Theater people, they were brutal to Robot Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, they, well, it's kind of like, uh, they, they, they do that to a few movies, uh, uh, Robot Holocaust, Squirm, a couple of movies where they do some editing to kind of bring it down because they did have to get, you know, a 90 minute movie within their two hour block. And then sometimes, you know, and then they still had the host segments. So a lot of times they would cut stuff out and uh, a lot of people would take that as the film itself. And they weren't really understanding the whole point behind Mystery Science Theater is for the majority of the time they were finding movies that were, quote unquote, entertainingly bad. And there are so many people that just would see a movie that was on Mystery Science Theater and would automatically be like, oh, God, that's one of the worst movies ever made. And it's like, no, part of the enjoyment is it being a silly but fun movie. And they always kind of went after that. A couple of ones, they admit they were like, well, uh, like something like Manos or whatever, where a few other ones that are like that, where uh, they're they're not the worst movie ever and yet people label them as such so but still i mean they they savage the movie but i think uh they don't have this like white hot hatred for have it have you ever seen kind of, robot holocaust on you know unrift saw a part of it i actually would like to uh to check it out at some point um but i've that is the thing i've only uh seen mo- i mean seen all the way through the mystery science theater version well and then we come to Psychos in Love. This is a movie that is a way better idea than it was a film. It's a film that thinks it's a wacky comedy. They forgot the wacky and the comedy. We're going to end off 1986 here with Troll, a movie that arguably is more famous because of how bad it's not really, but kind of sort of almost maybe sequel Troll 2 is. Really, Troll kind of came and went. Nobody really paid attention to it until the whole Troll 2 thing came up. Then we've got 
what I think is one of the most, and I mean this absolutely as a compliment, if Charles, you're listening to this, because I know we're sending these to you. Terror Vision is one of the most un-Charles Band, Charles Band films I've ever seen. Terror Vision looks like what Tim Burton's brain looks like when it watches TV. Terror Vision is the first film I can remember that really captured that live-action cartoon feel, yet it's still a serious-ish movie. Terror Vision doesn't look like anything else in the Empire catalog. No, it really doesn't. It has And I mean own... that as a compliment. Oh, absolutely. I love Terror Vision. I love everything about it. I The first time I saw it, it was on late-night television. Ironically and, enough. Uh, ironically enough, exactly. And unfortunately, I came in like maybe the halfway point, and I started watching it, and I'm like, what the hell is this? And every time they went to commercial, it was Terror Vision! I'm like, oh my god, I, I have to see this. So I stopped watching it after like 15 minutes, and uh, I went out and rented it, and was not disappointed. It's just a cavalcade of bizarre ideas and just rock and roll, and everything just mashed into this really, really fun movie. And uh, one thing I do want to mention I want to go back, just a, a rewind, just a smidge. Troll, J.K. Rowling, completely ripped off Troll and got Harry Potter, the idea for Harry Potter from Troll, and she won't admit it. Not a lot of people want to admit they've seen Troll. I've I mean, done, you know, that, you, you've got you've got Sonny Bono turning into a, a plant blob. Julia Louis-Dreyfus as, what was she, an imp or a fairy or something? She was a fairy or pixie or something. And I'm not like talking about the quality of the film itself. I'm simply saying that the, the idea for, uh, Harry Potter absolutely germinated here because I mean, the lead, you know, the, the care, the, the top two, uh, the, the son and, and the father and son are Harry Potter junior and senior. There's wizardry afoot. Uh, I mean, I could probably, whenever I do troll, there's probably a decent amount of, I shouldn't even say probably, I know that I'm going to be able to come up with a lot of parallels. I, I, I want to mention one thing about Terror Vision, though. Ted Nicolau's direction. I love the live-action cartoon thing he's going for. This is the second time Empire would use Wasp in there, because Wasp appears in this, too. And then they would appear again in Ghoulies 2, which we'll get to next week. I used to like to think that was a cool thing, like, you know, Blackie Lawless, and they're, and I, th I think they were on Metal Blade at the time. Metal Blade was all cool with this. It was all a cross-marketing deal that Charlie made with Metal Blade. I don't know. It just kind of ruins some of the illusion, doesn't it? I don't care. <laughs> you got Wasp in your movie. I know. I'm just pointing it out is all. Don't care. <laughs> well, well, we're going to end this episode there because everything after this is sort of Empire falling. So we'll look at the, the decline of Empire because up to this point, they've had some successes. Like Charlie says some of the movies would break even, but overall they were losing money, but he was borrowing a ton of money. Next week, that's all going to come to a head. Before Cecil and I leave, though, Charlie Band has a couple of things to say himself here. Where do you see the Empire legacy? Do you look back at the Empire legacy with fondness at this point? Do you, you know, you toiled all that time, mm -hmm. you made all these movies. Sure. What do you think of the Empire films today? You know, I, I really look back at my body of work and, and yes, I mean, some years, not that many, five, six years were Empire and there were movies before that and most of the movies were made starting with Puppet Master in late 89 under the Full Moon banner. And kind of ironically, the, you know, we folded a year or so ago everything, um, you know, into, into one, um, under one umbrella company, which is actually now called Full Moon Empire. So, uh, <laughs> that doesn't confuse anything. But so yeah, I look at my, my body of work more as uh, just that, uh, you know, Movies that I've made in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, the whole full moon era. Of course, Empire, those years were the years of, uh, you know, having the most to work with. I mean, the business was terrific um, for, for a number of years. The, the dollar was very strong in Europe. I grew up in Italy. And the, the sort of good luck and ability to be able to afford to buy the Xtino de Laurenti Studios and, you know, do what you dream of as a kid. Well, today you don't really dream of this because the world's very different. But back then, my, my thought was, wow, wouldn't it be great to own a studio and have movie shooting in three or four sound stages? And that happened, albeit briefly. That did happen, and that's what Empire was all about. Most of those movies were all shot in Italy. So, so you know, those were exciting times, and, and it was also great that we had more money to work with. It's funny how things have devolved into a world where, you know, we have 
10% of what the average budget was back then. And it's true. There's an advantage it's seen in, the, in this year where a lot of the, the technology allows us to do things that were more expensive and more heavy lifting back then with 35 millimeter and big heavy lights and all the stuff you needed to make even a small movie. So there is a certain savings, but even with that savings, you know, we don't have really even a third of the budget we the, or the budgets we had back in the 80s. So, you know, it's a different training. You have to design the films differently and hopefully things will get better with our, our, our Amazon channels doing really well and our streaming channel and we have a good relationship with Hulu and hopefully all of that will, you know, sort of conspire to in, in time give us little better budgets than what we've been working on for the last seven, eight years. Because once uh, once all those video stores went out of business, Blockbuster and Hollywood, it was sort of the end of how independent filmmakers were able to you know finance uh, their films. So next week, we'll be back with An Empire Falls. Cecil, if people want to try and find you, where would they do so? Find me at Good Bad Flicks on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, uh, as well as my site, goodbadflicks.com. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And guys, remember the 1201beyond.com for riff tracks, the Adam and Eve promo. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. And go buy that Empire box set. It's freaking beautiful.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.